Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. <laughs> you, you, you must know this feeling. You were just sitting in this chair the other there. day. I right? was sitting over there. That's right. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's event at the Commonwealth Club. My name is John Markoff. Once upon a time, I wrote about technology and science for the New York Times. And I was here not long ago in that chair with Paul Sappho in this chair to discuss my recent biography, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by entrepreneur and inventor Tony Fidel to discuss his book, Build, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making. Tony is an engineer and an author who led teams behind the iPod, iPhone, and Nest Learning Thermostat, uh, three of Time Magazine's 50 Most Influential Gadgets of All Time. He's authored more than 300 patents and invested in or advised at several hundred startup companies. In Build, Fidel, makes, use, <coughs> Fidel uses case studies, interviews, and 30 years of tech industry experience to examine what makes up effective leadership, vision, and problem-solving in a competitive business environment. Further, by learning from the untold stories behind the devices that make up our everyday lives, which is the ones we're interested in, Fidel explains how anyone can become a better business leader. Once again, a reminder for the audience, you can uh, write questions to Tony on cards, and if you're watching with us online, uh, use text chat, and we'll try to answer those questions as well. So uh, we're here to talk about your book, but I have to tell you, uh, there was an Apple announcement yesterday that made yeah. me feel bittersweet, <laughs> I wonder, and I wanted to know how you feel about that. 21 years is a long run. Nothing lasts forever. Years. Yeah. But now, how do you feel about the whole thing? Well, first, I was just sitting on, you know, I was sitting on stage yesterday, and all of a sudden, my phone, it was on silent, but it went nuts, and I'm sitting here talking to everyone, and it went nuts for 15 minutes, and I'm like, what's going on? And... And then afterwards, I got off stage and I was like, it was a message from my friends at Apple going, you, may, you need to know about this. And then it was reporter, 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 reporter. And so I was like, I'm like, oh, wait a second, I got to process this. And so I, I've had luckily 24 hours to process it. And the way I feel about it is this. I remember the Apple II. And I love the Apple II. That was my, the device, you know, maybe for iPod lovers, you know, when they were kids, that was their thing. But for me, that was the Apple II. And I was grief struck when the Apple II died. And it didn't actually die until the 90s. But it was, you know, that was the thing that I loved. But what I came to realize is the march of technology, the drumbeat of technology never ceases. Okay? And so you have to just understand, like, that was a great period of time. But that said, when you go back to iPod, it is the cornerstone of the modern-day Apple. If it wasn't for the iPod, you wouldn't have the iPhone. The a Apple wouldn't be the company, the most valuable, I think it is, still is today, the most valuable company uh, in, on the planet. So technology moves on, but the iPod will never be forgotten, right? It may be gone, but not forgotten. And so for me, I just can't think but only the great memories. We had a great party last night. We had a wake. You know, I, there was a book party last night, but it was really, you know, in some cases it was a wake for the, the iPod. And um, I, I just think of it very, very fondly. And I can't believe it actually lasted that long. Yeah. Right? And so you just have to pinch yourself and go, it is not just in Apple's history, but it is in the history of computers, technology, and 
media slash music, right? It transforms so many things, the companies, the uh, industries. And so I can only be grateful. You know, it, it, it hints also at alternative histories because you sort of did it three times. You did it at Fuse, which was your company. Then you did it at Real. And then you did it at Apple. Well, Real was six weeks. Well, but I, but yeah, was, yeah, but you're right. You you're went right. there. It could have been this alternative it history. It could have been. It could have been. Why, remind me why Real didn't work out. So Real Networks, so at the time, so Fuse, well, before Fuse, so Real Networks was before you Fuse. So at Real Networks, before. they had this thing, the Real Player. And they started having MP3s and audio files that you could play, right? And it was kind of the early, it was like Winamp. They were doing like a Winamp thing, which was an MP3 player uh, called Real Player. And I wanted to go and take that and put it on home theaters. I wanted to make devices with it, computers and everything. And so I was going to, I was hired. I was the CEO Phillips. I said, I arranged a, a meeting because I was in, um, uh, at, at Phillips doing uh, partnerships after I was doing my, my d- devices. And I was getting Rob Glazer and, and and rule uh, rule uh, I forget his last name yeah. together and he didn't show up on time so Rob came in and I sat for three hours with Rob telling him all about this vision and he, at the end of it is I want to hire you okay. to make this thing together and that's why it happened but at the end of the day it didn't happen at Real because um, they changed their mind yeah. they sold me a bill of goods and then mm-hmm. when I got there six weeks later. And then uh, they changed. That. Had you met Steve Jobs before this, or did you meet Steve Jobs when you went there to build the iPod? I met Steve once, and that was at Andy Hertzfeld's birthday. Okay. Steve came by his birthday in the front yard of Andy's house, and Steve had his bike. He you know came along with the bike in the basket, and he was there, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's Steve Jobs!" You know, <laughs> it was so cool. But then, how did the the deal happen? Did he call you up? Did you go to them? I forget for, the, for iPod for iPod. So for iPod, what happened specifically was I had lunch um, with a friend of mine. This is when I had Fuse and we were doing um, MP3 players and, and that home theaters. Um, and we had lunch and he was uh, there's Ali Elasti and Ali and I worked together at um, General Magic. And so Ali and I had lunch together and I was telling him all about this company we had. And what I was trying to do um, with MP3s and, and such. And I was like, and the internet crunch happened, right? To April 2000 happened and everything was down. And I was pitching and pitching and pitching 80 pitches to try to raise money for Fuse. And all of them failed. And Ali goes, and I told him, and he's like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. The next day, Ali had a lunch with John Rubenstein. Mm-hmm. And they worked together at Next. And John was uh, head of hardware at the time at Apple and said, who do you know who to Ali? And Ali's go, oh, well, I just talked to Tony the day before. You guys should hook together because he's doing something like that. And so then I came on as a consultant. So that's how it all came together. And so you were already at Apple consulting the first time you met Steve. Yeah. The first time I officially met Steve in a business context was six weeks into my consulting gig. And it was a pitch to him that turned out to be the iPod. How did it go? <laughs> it was three hours. It was a two and a half to three hour meeting. And uh, uh, I was prepped because luckily I had Stan Ng with me. And Stan, uh, and he's still at Apple today. And he taught me the do's and don'ts of how to pitch uh, to Steve because he had done it in the past. And so um, 
so we, uh, I, I, we made the slide deck, and I presented it, and we went through it. And the biggest thing that was, was like, Sony has the number one slot in every single audio category in the marketplace. Walkman. Right? It was a Walkman. It was a home, a home theater, a home theater, a home stereos, all of those things, speakers, everything. And so I was like, how are we going to beat them? Right. And so that was one of my biggest concerns was the, the competitive side. But the, but I showed three different versions of what the iPod could be, different types of memory and layouts. And as Stan told me, was like, save the best for last. So the first two was like, shoot that one down, shoot that one. Steve will shoot that one down, that one down. And then the last one is the one. And I actually had made a styrofoam uh, foam model, and I weighted it with my grandfather's fishing weights and made this whole thing and, and put, it, uh, put it in front of him, and he held it. And, and, uh, so there was pushback. Yes. The, the lore I've heard about Steve is that he'll often tell you this is a terrible idea, but if you stand up to him and sort of stand your ground... Yeah, we had, I, I, I had to, and we had to over time. But at this meeting, it was like, ha ha. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously there was some pre work done before I got there. So. Okay. All right. Um, what did you learn from writing Build? I think I learned one, I was able to process a lot, especially from the last five years of all the kind of things that happened with Nest and the teams and that. But it really comes down to regardless of the different technologies, the different things you're building and how you're trying to change the world with those things that you're doing, whether it's product services, electrons or atoms, human nature doesn't change. The teams, the people building themselves, building businesses, all of those things are born out of human nature. And you have to go back to those first principles and understand that. So, and, and make sure that if you do a great job with those things, um, along with great technology, then you can have success. If you're just focused on the technology for technology's sake, and that doesn't mean just the people inside of the company. This means the, the customer outside as well, whether that's a business customer or, or an end consumer or what have you. You need to really get inside their brains in the human nature aspects of it to be able to sell sell people or convince people and make sure you're telling a great story, a non-fictional story. Too many times in technology, as we know, there's a fictional story of marketing and then the product shows up and you're like, wait a second, how does it come together? But you have to put together a really great story that resonates and and deliver on that. I mean, when I was reading, you know, a certain part of your audience is obvious, but I wanted to ask you what you were thinking about. Who was your audience when, when, when you started? I mean, who, who did you want to reach? The audience for the book is really, and it's it's a mentorship encyclopedia. It's not a you know a linear, uh, non-fictional or memoir or anything like that. It is really bite-sized chapters of for for the TikTok generation. So you can dive in five or seven pages, something like that. So you can dive in and learn something. And it's really about a mentorship encyclopedia of all kinds of crazy stuff. So I was trying to target my younger self. I was trying to target what did I learn and how did I learn it um, and those lessons learned um, and trying to help those who are in high school or in college or just starting out in their careers to see forward of what it can look like, the good and the bad of all of these different phases of of building yourself, working in teams, growing, growing teams, growing products and growing businesses and working both with the 
human nature and politics inside of companies, as well as how to think about consumers outside. So that was one, that was really the audience that I was trying to target, but it's definitely a broad audience, uh, as well as tech fans and all that other stuff. But it's a broad audience, but it's really meant for that, yeah. that initial, that in, you know, initial in your career. I, you know, I was thinking, so clearly there is this sort of, uh, mythology or the lore around startups, you were speaking to that, but then not everybody starts a company. No. Some people go to work in companies. Is there something for... Yeah, for th- this book isn't for people who are just entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. This is human nature that comes in large companies, because I worked at Philips with 375,000 people. I've worked in startups with you know 10 or 15 people. And, and so, again, it's human nature is the same in all of these, these organizations. But it's really said, if you're trying to build a new project inside of a company or a new business inside of a company, or you're just trying to build your career inside of a large company, how to think about those things. So it's really not just about you know the startup culture of Silicon Valley, or and you need to be an entrepreneur, and you need to be a CEO. This is just if you're in a team, you know, and you're trying to do or want to know how to do great work and what it looks like to have, be in a great team trying to be doing great work, whether that's in a big or small company. Yeah. I, I read a, a draft and uh, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't gone back and read the whole final product yet, but... There was a lot of editing. We left 300 pages on that. But, you know, the thing I have to give you credit for is uh, this sounded like Tony. Um, it, it sounded like an authentic book, um, which, which I, I'm saying to you as a compliment, but the subtitle is an unorthodox guide. And I was trying to think, well, what would Tony say orthodoxy is? Right. So the orthodoxy of how I grew up in Silicon Valley, because I came here and I was 21, the orthodoxy is change. If you read management books, they're like, oh, we have this new management philosophy and we're going to do stock options this way and we're going to do this kind of way of doing... <laughs> it's so unorthodox. Actually, I'm telling you stories in here about how things didn't change when it comes to human nature. The technology may change, but the way you work together on a team or build yourself is very much rooted in, in uh, decades and centuries of human nature. And, 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 and that. So it's unorthodox because it's against the orthodoxy of the technology business in general. Yeah. What was it like to write a book? <laughs> well, you and I were, you know, <laughs> lamenting about that many times. And that was your, I don't, how many books have you written? I think six. Six. Well, this was my first, but I, I, I could tell for you, even in your sixth book, it wasn't so easy, right? You <laughs> think get it easier, gets easier. Right? Yeah. Um, um, I think for me, it was difficult, but luckily I had a really amazing co-writer, a woman named Dina Levinsky. She and I um, worked together at Nest. We only did short form. She never did long form before she, I think when we first met, she was 22. Um, English is her second language. Russian is her first language. (laughs) Russian is her mother. Genius, genius, uh, you know, um, uh, writer um, and speaker. But what we did in the first three years of Nest, writing the web copy and manuals and what have you, was she was able to, we were able to work together to find my voice. She came from one area and there the other, and we just, you know, and, and we found it. And so we started working together at Nest that way, and it was very productive. Um, and then uh, about two and a half years ago, she quit her job. And, uh, and, I was like, and I've been having this thing about writing a book in the back, right? You know, you know Brockman. Brockman's bugging us always. Another book. He's bugging me 15 years to write a book. And so he's like, 
I think I understand what the book should be, and I think I know who I want to partner with. Because in the book, I actually say, if you're going to do something hard, you should probably have a good partner alongside. And so Dina was that, and we worked really hard um, passing things back and forth. This wasn't just telling something and coming up, but it, we spent three, six to nine months just on the formatting of the book. Because it really is trying to be an encyclopedia and trying to think differently of, on how, this, how these, these vignettes are told and these, it, this advice is given. So we worked on that. And, then we, and because she knew me for so long and we had gone through the ups and the downs of Ness together and families and you know, all that stuff, that you know, we really bonded together. And she's even told me, she's like, people have approached her because the book you know, is, 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 our, is our, our product together well, would you come and do this with me? And she's like, I don't think, because we, we have that relationship, yeah. and so it's special. You talk about partnerships, and, and you also talked about sort of startup partnerships in the book, and it, it, mm-hmm. it reminded me, I've always thought that the canonical Silicon Valley partnership was Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. And then I thought about you and your partner at Nest, Matt Rogers. Matt Rogers. And actually, the first question, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in that, um, having a partnership and what... So let's start with with Matt and you. What were the you know what did you both bring to the equation in starting next nest nest yeah, next <laughs> nest? Um, I think the for me the big thing was I had gone through ten years of failure at, in Silicon Valley. Then I had ten years of crazy crazy times at Apple, right? But all of it was hard work all twenty years, and I was over yeah, at that time I was. 41, something like that, 42. And I was like, and I had start, started, I think, seven or eight companies in my, you know, and, and as well as build divisions. And I was like, and I was really financially, you know, adjusted, so to speak. And I was like, do I really want to go into this? And so I had this idea and I really thought it was a great idea. But then I needed someone to work with that I knew that I could trust. And I saw um, because Matt was an intern on, he was our, one or our first or second intern ever on the iPod team. And I loved him. And he rose through the ranks so quickly and became a manager. And he's just natural. And he's just a smart, smart guy. And, um, and I noticed that in him. And so, I, you know, he was always asking me the questions and advice and everything. And so when he approached me and he's like, what are you doing now, Tony? What are you doing? And I said, I got this idea, but I'm not sure if I want to do it. And we go into the book, in the book about that. And he was like, we got to do this thing. We got to do this thing. And I was like, okay, I think now I have the wind at my back, so to speak. And I have someone who's like, when I'm up and he's down, I can pull him up. And when I'm down, he can pull me up. And it was really... A two different generations in a way. And he could bring certain talents in and I could bring certain talents in. It was that multi-generational, multi-different networks that could come together to make Nest happen. But you're both technical. You both, one of you wasn't a marketing guy. Yeah, Matt, Matt was at the time very much that. But for me, okay. I had learned through the spectacular disaster that was General Magic to start learning how to storytell. Yeah. Instead of talking about what, 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 talking about why, why, why. That was the big shift. And so at Phillips, I was focused on the why. Yeah. And then we had, a disaster, we had a critical success in the product. People liked the product. But we weren't able to do a great job of marketing or sales. So I learned through that disaster. One is 
talk about the story and then get the story out there in the right way. Right. So each time and then I watched it perfected it with Steve and I started to mean that and really learn and tear apart what was going on. So I was working on the why and all of the marketing sales, the all the other. And, you know, I have obviously technology, too. He would bring up the technology piece and we would work together so I could help him grow and, and to be a, a really big, you know, engineering team leader. And I could go and do this a whole other area. Mm-hmm. So it was a really great Great right. combination. But, you know, it was trial by fire for me and marketing and all that stuff because I had to learn it. Put, you put that in the book. I had to learn by doing and really talk to some great people and mentors to help teach me and show me what show me what I thought was the right way to do it and, and conv- give me confidence that I actually had the right ideas. Yeah. Right. Uh, in Silicon Valley, um, corporate cultures have always been unique and interesting. <laughs> and, and so I want to go backwards first because there was, you know, general magic. Um, so I want to ask about culture in the sense of general magic was one of those companies. There was a, there was a proliferation of companies and people, young engineers who grew up out of Macintosh. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of, there was not only, not only the technology was evolving, but there were people who had worked on the Mac team and the related things who had this vision of this pirate thing that had happened. Right. And so what was unique about the general magic culture? Um, or so, what, what did you take well, away? Well, for me, well, it was also the first time I was in a real culture of building compared to when I, cause I came right from school. And I had my own startups in school, but I didn't have a, a team who really knew what they were doing. So at General Magic, the culture was really, you know, as you say, pirate culture. Um, we had a lot of people who had worked together, right, um, either on the Mac or with, in system software um, subsequently, y- younger people who were working on that. And so the culture was like, we can make anything, right? We can make anything, and we want to make something that we believe the world will need. So we were making things for ourselves. We were making the iPhone 15 years too soon. Yeah. So no one understood the pain we were solving, not even ourselves. We just thought it was cool. So we get to work in this great sandbox. We also um, decidedly, and this is how I learned and then learned, unlearned it very quickly, which is we didn't need managers. We're going to all do this together. We're going to all bond together and it's just going to be a great world. And, you know, we're going to figure it out. Because we have heroes leading us who, who designed the Mac and stuff. And, uh, you know, what was supposed to be a one-year or a year-and-a-half project turned into two, then three, then four-year project. And it just kept getting bigger and crazier. And, and um, through that, I learned that management's absolutely necessary, or I should say leadership in a way, much more than manage, management, um, that we have to have constraints around us. We were kids in a candy store. Everybody said we were going to take on the world. We we're going to beat Microsoft, everything. But we had no constraints on money, on time. Whatever we wanted to do, we could do. Yeah. And that, I learned, was we need to have leadership. We need to know why, you know, why we're building it and who we're building it for, the whole story. And we need real constraints. Yeah. Was there a moment that you realized you were a decade too early? What was that moment like? Was it one point in time that you went from we're going to invent the future to the future is not ready for us? I, I think it was right around. I didn't know until probably early 2000s yeah. because then mobile networks were, you know, General Magic. If you, if you don't know what it is, you should watch the movie. It's a great movie. It's incredible lessons learned there. But it's great for anybody trying to learn, especially young people. Um, 
when General Magic was doing what it was trying to do in the early 90s, there was no internet, there was no Wi-Fi, there was no mobile data. Most people weren't even emailing yet. If they did, they had corporate email. Um, we were doing downloadable games. No one knew what that was until you know, 15 years later. We were doing travel, trying to do travel. The vision was so broad, right? Commerce, community, and communication, something like that. So it was all there, but the fundamental technology was not. And so we were conjuring these things up, and it was going to be the right thing. But it didn't take until we got all of those things to come together in the early 2000s when it all cemented, yeah. right? Um, and people, we didn't have the internet, right? So now you were like starting to see, oh, we're booking travel and we're doing e-tailing and all that stuff. So we were just really ahead of our time, which was amazing to learn from, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, that was, you know, I don't know. I think inflation adjusted, it was in 1991, over a billion dollars was so that's in familiar Silicon up in flames. So you, you came to a company that had come out of Apple culture, yep. and you went back into Apple, a new Apple, well, sort of a new old Apple culture, Apple under Steve. Mm-hmm. And then you went to Google, another yeah. ca- uh, Sergey and Larry culture. What about the distinction between Apple under Steve and Google under Larry and Sergey? Well, I think you need to look at the leaders first. If you look at Google... Um, or specifically Larry and, 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 and part Sergey, when they came out of college, right, they had an algorithm for search that was better than anyone's, right? And then they were able to marry it with DoubleClick, right? But if you look at Google, Google has been up and to the right and has never gone through any kind of existential moment, a near-death crisis. It has been just a cash-generating machine. All right. If you look at Steve, you can look at Apple, but let's look at Steve. Steve was there was the up of the Apple II, the down of the Mac. You know, Mac was great, but it was a down. Right. Then it kind of middled on. You know, and then he went to next. It was up and then down. Right. So he went through these near death moments and had to reimagine himself, reimagine the things he was doing each time. So that hardens you, makes you kind of see differently. Right. It makes you go, okay, I, I, you question a lot of things. When you never had that near-death moment, um, and also Steve was, was married, had you know, kids, you, know, you have a whole different kind of lifestyle over that time. The next, this generation of Apple, you know, I, maybe there's three waves for me, Apple II, Mac, and then iPod, post-iPod. Um, you go, oh, he was a tempered business leader and, and understood those things and constrained what constrained because he lived in the world of constraints and failure. Whereas in Google, you don't have that. You're going to have a different way of looking at the world. So I think that's really the way to contrast it yeah. um, and uh, why, you know, the ethos and the culture is different. Also, when it's all when it started as all electrons versus atoms and electrons, you have a very different way of developing costs. Yeah. If you screw up, remember the Apple III almost bankrupted the company because they didn't do this and the hardware didn't work because they didn't get all the pieces right. So you have a very, very different culture when you're, when you can't just ship a beta because yeah. people, because ship a beta because it's free. Whereas when people have to put money on the line and there could be returns and unhappy customers, you can't really complain when it's free, yeah. right? Because you're the product. But when you're buying the product, it's a different story. 
You spend a lot of time in parts of the book talking about that unconstrained world of Google that you found yourself in. Yes. I think I, um, like, well, I won't, I won't use that term on the radio. There's, a, there's, a, there's something about massages in, <laughs> in a, that people can read. Um, yeah, there's a whole chapter about that. But it's, it's uh, disorienting. I actually even felt a little bit disoriented for me to be in that, uh, you know, there are no boundaries, no, no frames kind of environment. Right. Um, that may be a one-off, right? That may be a once-in-a-generation kind of thing. Well, look, the problem with that is, and, and there, look, Google's successful. I have Google stock. I, you know, I'm not, you know, they have their thing, okay? It wasn't my thing. That's not how I was raised. I was raised in the pre-Apple, Apple culture, with that whole kind of thing. Um, they have theirs, and it works for them in whatever way. But it is very different and very jarring when you come from one into the other and see this. Because... I don't think, unless you have a special business model like they have, what happens is you get all kinds of other startups trying to replicate that. And they replicate it without having the same underlying economics. And what, what happens is it, it distorts everything. It distorts how employees think they should be treated or how they should have all these perks. Everybody should be treated well, but I should have perks upon perks upon perks upon perks. You know, most companies, almost all companies can't afford those things, right? So it distorts and warps how you have to think about the cultures you create and all those other things. So just because we heard all the media saying, oh, look at this cool thing and look at this cool thing and look at that Google does, it's, it's to me, it's a special environment. It's almost like a different planet. And, and, and when you go back to this planet, you know, the, you know, the other world with the, you know, more, you know, not a cash generating machine like it is. You have to think differently. Yeah. Right. What drove it home to me was I, you, you have this example of someone standing up in all hands meeting at Google and complaining about the fact that their favorite yogurt is gone. And I just thought, that's a world that I, that I don't really know. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, we're talking like, you know, each week it's uh, like 60 to 80,000 people, maybe even more now, get on around the world, get on. And this person's asking a question. It's like, why don't we have the yogurt that I love in the refrigerator? And you're like, Really? <laughs> I'm like, that's what we discuss here when we have 80,000 people? Like, how much is this meeting costing us per minute? You know, it's just it's just a different world. Yeah. So one of those things that I took away from is you focus on advising people to look for something that is I think it's the, the idea is meaningful. So you, you, won't, you, you meaningful. know, either. in Yeah. So how, so how do you find your way to that and how hard is it? I mean, it's sort of an easy thing to say, but in this world. Okay, let me give you an analogy um, that, you know, that seems to really work because meaningful is very vague. But there's a big difference between a vitamin and a painkiller. A vitamin, something you could take and maybe it will help. Not everyone takes them. But if you have pain, you want a painkiller unless you really are, you know, a glutton or something like that, masochist. So, uh, So meaningful to me means pain. Maybe it's pain that you've habituated away. You've, you've saw it a long time ago, and now you just go, oh, that's the way the world works. Or there's pain that you have just right now that you experience every day and that you're running into. And so I always target that. Because when you target pain, you can remind people of that pain if they've habituated away or they see it. And you can say, there's a solution for that, right? And that is a great way of getting customers to resonate with what you're trying to solve. Now you have to solve in a special way that's both 
emotional and rational combination and deliver on that so it's not a non-fictional story, you know, and deliver. But you need to start from a point of view where you're fixing something. General Magic wasn't fixing pain, yeah. right? We were impressing the geek next to us, no, right? You need to go back and say, what are a lot of people having pain and how are we going to solve, solve for that? Actually, that speaks to me very directly. I'm renting a home that has a thermostat that, uh, that <laughs> fits directly into that pain-generating concept, but doesn't have a Nest thermostat. Yeah, well, I think uh, you know, that's what we were trying to solve. Yeah. <laughs> so um, at a certain point, you left Silicon Valley. Um, mm-hmm. Seven it, years you know, ago. It's, it's become a fad recently. You were early to leave. Um, Pre-Trump, pre-Brexit, pre-Macron. Yeah, all of the above. Um, are we at that point that the party's over here in Silicon Valley? You know, it's one of the pe- things that people speculate on continuously. Is there a point where Silicon Valley is not what it has been for decades? Are we at that point? Well, let's separate the financial stuff that's going on. Yeah. But let's talk about the yeah. innovation, yeah. right? Yeah. Look. The reason why Silicon Valley was for so long, and there's also Boston, you know, in that hub too, was because it was, we didn't have the tools we have today. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have open source. We did, we, the, the, the culture and the tools to create Silicon Valley were ca- captive in a, in a local area. Since the open source movement, since the internet and this, and capital seeing there and the app economy and the smartphone economy because people get c- computers in their pockets everywhere and mobile networks. That technology has spread far and wide, right? Look at China. They were able to take open source and then do what they wanted to do with it, right? So the technology has... We've always talked about the democratization of technology for individuals. Now the democratization of the technology has happened for companies to be able to be created around the world. And that's why you see innovation everywhere and why we've invested in 200 companies all around the world. They're not just coming out of Silicon Valley. Actually, and it's not just in the hubs of the world. This is happening all over wherever the problems exist, right? And where these industry hubs are now. So it's not just about where the technology is generated. It's where these industries are and that the technology is coming to them. So you really, I mean, you have a broad experience. You've seen Europe. You've seen Asia. I've seen it. Yeah, I lived in Indonesia. Is the era of innovation centers like what Silicon Valley was emblematic over then? Is that what you're saying? No, because they're still being born out of universities. So a lot of the centers are coming out of the universities. And then you're you're seeing the talent come from there. And then there's these hubs like Waterloo. That's where BlackBerry and stuff. Waterloo's now got all kinds of technology stuff going on. So there's still where is the technology or the research being done. But now it's much more level playing field. So but you're seeing this. You're seeing this everywhere. I was in Lisbon. uh, No, I was in Valencia. And I was like and I went to an optical photonics computing company. And I was like, what in? And I was like, and I was like, here's the beach. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. <laughs> and you start to see this everywhere, and they can, they and and capital is now flowing everywhere, and so so it's it's just not going to be as concentrated. It won't be the same uh, as it was, but it's not like Silicon Valley is going to just go away. But it is definitely diffusing all around the world. Sure. So I mean, you came from Detroit. You were in Silicon Valley. I, you know, I often I often think about. And what happened to Detroit happened to Silicon Valley. The Valley is now a design and marketing center. It used to be a manufacturing center. It used to be. Manufacturing is now, you know, there's a supply chain. Outsourced. 
may or may not be working. That might have been a mistake. We're, we're going to find out. Might have been. <laughs> well, well, so there, is, there are these things called platforms, and platforms serve as choke points, in effect. And, and there was this sure. period, for example, I was spending a lot of time in Europe in 2005 and 2006, and it looked like there was more mobile innovation happening in Europe than there was in America. And it looked like, you know, there was Symbian, there was Nokia, there sure, was all sure, this sure, stuff sure, happening sure. over there. And then all of a sudden, you know, you were busy working away and this thing called the iPhone showed up and it right. just reset everything to the valley. And there was this other choke point. Um, what happened? I mean, how do you take that lesson and sort of play it forward? I often wondered whether the next platform like that, that was a ch- choke point might emerge in Asia first. I mean, there was this, this sort of arc of, of things that moved in the computing from east to west. Well, not everything should be a platform, okay? So platforms only have a right to exist when you solve an application really, really well. And then lots of people on it, and you start to create an ecosystem, and you build, right? The iPhone wasn't a platform when it came out. It came, the App Store came a year later and started to become a platform, right? So you always have to have an application and solve it really well. And then you, if you do a good job, then you can become a platform. So when I look at, if I look at automobiles, look at how there's 400, 500 automobile or mobility companies in China, all using similar parts and everything and and changing things up um, because they have all the infrastructure there. All of those pieces have been democratized, right? And they can use them. The same thing's going on in Europe and everywhere else. I see a rebirth in Detroit or in that or that area because I'm also on I'm working with this company called Magna. It's kind of the Foxconn. It's like the biggest manufacturer you've never heard of. And they design and build um, mobility products for all around the world. They have 350 factories, design centers. Where are their headquarters? Uh, They're headquartered in Toronto and and just outside of Detroit. Yeah. Right. And and so they're now spreading that innovation all around and they're making cars and designing mobility for Vietnam and Vietnam and so in, in something in, 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 in Brazil or what have you. So this stuff is reigniting all of these industries, whether they're older companies or new companies that you know, were born out of the disaster of, you know, the corporate world or what have you. Look at um, all this, the, you know, look at all the startups. Uh, in the automotive industry now, so many brands, right? Now, of course, that's going to consolidate over time. But the in, where the incumbents were or are, usually that's where it's great fertile ground for new companies to be generated because the technology has been democratized. They can leave those companies, start their own companies with the talent that came from the, the new talent that came from those incumbents and can start a challenger against the big guy. And so this is just what happened with iPhone. It just didn't happen there, right? Yeah. Because it wasn't still, that technology was not there. But it's, now it's happening everywhere. And that's what's so great because so many problems can't just be solved by one mode of thinking that come out of one place in the world. Interesting. Many different ways. When I was, uh, last time I was in China was at the end of 2016, which was at the height of this entrepreneurial bloom in, in, in Beijing and Shanghai just before it was kind of, well, several years before it was crushed. And Do you have a sense of, I mean, what struck me at the time was, uh, you know, a lot of people have talked about China stealing technology from the U.S. And what struck me is the thing that they stole was Silicon Valley's entrepreneurial culture. Being in the third ring in Beijing felt like being in Silicon Valley. Everybody wanted to do 
I haven't gone back. Is that is that managed to survive whatever's well, very, gone on? Very much so. So we have to remember two things. Well, three things really. And the U.S. is doing one of the three things, starting to do one of the three things now. The first one is the difference between the cultures is stark. Well, what they are doing everything for the collective. We are doing everything for the individual. Our laws, everything else is around that. So, so that's one big thing. I'm not saying their system's wrong or our system's right or vice versa. It's just that's the fact. The next fact is what they call sharing, we call stealing. Okay? And every time we sit there and say, oh, we're going to make this business together and everything else. But when you have fundamental different way of seeing things, again, I'm not saying they're wrong. What we, we cast that sharing as stealing and that's wrong. For them, that's how it works for their thing. The other one is incredible government incentives. It's like the Silicon Valley of capital all over <laughs> Right. And it's all over the country. We're going to funnel this in. We're going to make chip companies. We're going to make 400 auto companies. We're going to we're going to funnel as much capital is to rise up. Right. Now we're starting to see it. Oh, shit. We outsource. Now we need semiconductors. Oh, we now we need battery materials. And oh, we need that. Like, oh, shit. We're we're, we're, we've been resting on our laurels. So we're going to fix that. But they have a whole culture around this to rise themselves up. They rose themselves up so much, some of them, that they got chopped off. Their heads got chopped off by the, you know, the Communist Party because they're like, oh, wait a second, Nobody's been, nobody challenges the government, yeah. right? So you better you know, be much more uh, <laughs> humble <laughs> when it comes to those things. You have an investment company. Are you international and you're completely international? Or are you focused on Europe? What- we, are, we are on every... Well, we don't invest in China because it's a whole different world. And it, it, did you try and get burned or did you? Just... No, no, no. We never did because I had been going there for so many years with the iPod and iPhone and stuff. I knew it was a different culture and I looked at it for a little while, never invested. And I was like, there was no pattern recognition. I can do pattern recognition in, from Silicon Valley, the rest of the U.S., North America, even Latin America, Europe, um, even Southeast Asia, India. I can pattern match. I can do that. But there I can't. So, but we are we have we have investments on every continent except Africa right now, and that's not for it's just we haven't had the time. But we, so we see innovation everywhere, and the the we cross pollinate different types of technologies or business models from one area of the world to the another area of the world, and and ways of doing. And it's really fascinating and fun because there are smart people everywhere. It's crazy cool. And how much of your how much of your your investment business is sustainability or what you would call green? Is it a- we have three pillars. Um, we try to invest in disruptive technologies for, to help the planet, to help societies, and to help uh, individuals' health. Those are the three areas that we, 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 we spend time in. And we only want to work with entrepreneurs doing really hard things to disrupt the incumbents. Right. Because that's what I've learned, you know, disrupting Sony or Nokia or whatever. If you have the right technology, you can go and change things in your direction as opposed to having to, you know, bounce off of the and get stomped by these big elephants. Yeah. Right. Um, do things that they don't even understand, but challenge them. Um, and so we're 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 I think we have, I think, maybe a third uh, and growing. It's, it's a growing set is a really around the climate crisis and what we're trying to do. And with Build, all the, all the net proceeds of that are matched five times by, by me. And we go and invest in climate crisis businesses. So we're going to invest even more given, uh, given this, this initiative because it's so we have an existential problem, right? And we have to solve it. And so we want to go work on those things that are really meaningful. 
there was a period um, when Silicon Valley was uh, where a green investing for for was this in the nineties, early two thousands, where it was fashionable to be venture yeah, green, green but sure. but but then it went away. You came to sustainability long after that, isn't that? No, I've been in sustain. Well, I did a you know I did a, a in seventh grade uh, the solar <laughs> uh, the feasibility of solar in metropolitan Detroit. Okay, okay so I've always been in it. Uh, that was my science fair project. Uh, I got second, thing <laughs> in Metro Detroit. Um, wrote a computer program on my Apple II to do all that. But anyway, so I've always been there. I've always okay. cared about the plant. I started recycling in the 80s. Um, and so uh, actually Nest was a green tech company, yeah. Yeah. right? Nest was all about saving energy. Um, and we called it saving money, but we were like it's saving energy and not being wasteful. That was the backstory. Um, and so what happened in the green revolution, and this is what I'm worried about, the, this next green, re- the green revolution we're in now, is that we started and it became capital intensive and you need to really understand that it was going to take a long time to see these businesses come to fruition. What showed up at the same time was the app economy and social mobile platforms. All the capital said, oh, my God, what are we doing this for? It's going to take 10, 15 years to do. I can run and invest in this and this, and I'm going to get a return of X, Y, Z in three years or five years, and it's going to be outsized, and we're going to you know, have eyeballs all around the world. So all the money went there, yeah. and it was drained away from the green tech, right? And I'm like, that's why, if, that's why if, it's not that we didn't have good technology then or the right initiative, but... The, the money flew to where the less friction was for the ROI, and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, that's great and wonderful. And, and so the, the world changed, Ubers and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Fast forward today, because just before COVID, just before the, the pandemic, it was crickets in what we were doing. We've been investing in these climate crisis businesses now for five, six, seven years um, before the pandemic. And it was everyone's like, whatever, you're, you're just behind the times, dude. What are you doing? Like, get past it. I'm like, no, we have an existential crisis. It's just a matter of when that you're going to wake up to this versus if, right? You know, and so we just kept, our, we kept that thesis, right? COVID happened. Well, Greta Thunberg happened. That was the start of it. And then COVID happened. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, shit, we got to worry about this stuff. Right. And then the Ukraine and the tragedy, the horrible tragedy in Ukraine. Everyone's like, oh, my God, we got to get away from this energy, you know, because we were burying all this stuff going, oh, it's going to be fine. Now we see what really happens because it's come to light. So now the industry is moving in that direction very quickly. It's it's great, in, especially in Europe, to see all of the um, the laws, you know, carbon border taxes coming on. If you make a battery manufacturing plant you have to make a battery recycling plant if you don't you can't have the manufacturing plant right so you see this circular economy starting to uh, be incentivized or mandated it's really not, it's really interesting to be an investor over there and so now we have companies calling us going what solutions do you have for these problems that we have which is very different than just three years ago when people are like yeah yeah whatever you're gonna lose money but here's my worry my worry is this my worry is when we talk about stupid shit like the metaverse, <laughs> it's going to drain away capital from this thing that we have to get right this time, just like we had social mobile before, right? Or the stupid culture around the culture. I 
think the technology of crypto and blockchain, if done right and they're green, those are good technologies. NFTs, not the culture again and what you're doing with it, but the technology is the right thing. AR, VR, XR, those are great technologies. In service of the metaverse, wrong. And I don't want to see all that capital go there and drain away from the climate crisis that we have. And luckily, governments and corporates, and they're showing much more love around that. So, you know, but we got to get rid of some of this this wasteful capital going to the wrong things. The, the, the goal's clear. The path is often a struggle. I, when I visited you in Asia, you had what I still think was a spectacular idea as an alternative to these two-stroke, uh, two-wheeled devices that I right. saw. Would, and, and my sense is it didn't work out, but it's clearly the right idea. Would it, you take it, me through that? that so story? we were so I, I, living in, in Indonesia, living in Bali, um, you when you go on the and all throughout Southeast Asia, you go on the roads and you go, uh, there are 10 times more two wheel vehicles on the road than four wheel vehicles on the road. It's the exact opposite here. It might be even worse, 20 to one, something like that. As as bike riders, we know. Right. Yeah. But when you go there, you're like, oh, my God. Why hasn't these all of these things been electrified? Everything makes sense to be electrified. And this, you know, I started this kind of drumbeat four years ago, something like that. So we're starting, we're getting moving and all that other stuff. And then what happened was COVID. COVID happened and it shut down the ability to travel within the regions, us to be able to hire capital. I couldn't go there. Um, All these things happened. And then what happened was the big industries woke up to that. And so they started making that change. So when we were going to try to make kind of the Tesla a two wheels. Um, we couldn't do it fast enough because we couldn't get things out of China, you know, all the COVID stuff. And so these larger companies started making the things that we wanted to make. And so we were, it's just a matter of timing and, and that stuff. But it's happening, and it's happening incredibly fast in the electrification of these mobility um, products all throughout. And I'm very pleased to see it, actually. And are there other ideas in the mobility space? I mean, have you invested in any self-driving Car um, startups, no. or what about? Well, no, I did. I invested in sensors. Yeah, lots of sensors and compute and other things of that nature because we need those not to replace people, but to augment people to make safer and safer driving. Yeah, right, or more efficient driving, um, uh, transportation. So for me, I'm I'm all for the lower level stuff. This self driving stuff we're seeing. We were told, you know, our friend Sebastian started in the, you know, 2008 or nine or whatever, and it's been going, and we're like, oh, it's going to be there. Elon, seven years now, self-driving is coming. It's still not there, and I still don't believe it's going to be there, and it's there for a, ro- a lot of reasons, um, <laughs> and it's not going to be here. You know, you have to learn to crawl before you can walk, before you run, and everyone's like, oh, my God, self-driving, we're going to be on the roads, and we're going to be on urban inner cities and all Freaking bullshit. The technology has to go through the same kind of maturation cycle, just like people do. Absolutely. I, I, I have to tell you about you probably, I don't know if you've seen this, but, you know, San Francisco is a city where they're letting uh, Waymo and Cruz now drive cars without humans in them. And there's a wonderful video of this homeless guy basically playing a matador with a uh, cruise. And it's just like so obvious that every high school student in the world is going to do this as soon as these things are out there. And... You can hack them. You know, you're going to hack them just like there's graffiti. You can like change the signs and make signs that don't exist, you know, that don't really relate to the real world. And these things get confused. And so we have a lot of stuff we need to do before it's self-driving the way everyone envisions or is 
pitching you, just like they're pitching you on the metaverse. Yeah. It's, it's complete bullshit. Uh, globally, how about self-driving buses as opposed to self-driving cars? Are you Slow-speed self-driving buses where you know the route really well? Absolutely. That's, it's a great, that's a great thing. We, we have self-driving trains today. They just happen to be on tracks. Self-driving buses is the next kind of step up. We have self-driving planes, right? But you don't have traffic and people and matadors and signs in the sky and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Let me bring the audience in. Um, first, first question is, are there any innovative designs from the pandemic that have stuck with you? D- innovative from designs design. from the pandemic. I mean, things that have emerged to deal with the pandemic, I think, is what they're asking. Oh, to emerge to deal with the pandemic. Well, you know, I'm seeing a ton of in-home testing going on. Actually, we don't see that a lot of the COVID positive. COVID is going crazy in the U.S. Like the number of people have told me they have COVID in the last 10 days has been worse than during the pandemic because we're out of it. Um, and and so, we're, so a lot of people are self-testing and nobody's reporting it. So we're not even seeing the data. So, yeah, there's a lot of that technology going on. Um, I see, um, you know, for me it really cemented the fact that we don't have to go travel everywhere. You know, we're Zooming every, everywhere now. And we don't always have to be, you know, together. Even if we, hopefully we have a human connection, but we don't have to be together physically to continue that. Let me, so one of the things that's disappointed me is, okay, we've had five years of Zoom now or whatever. It hasn't made as much progress. I mean, there are all kinds of limitations to the Zoom interaction. Yeah. I thought there would have been more sort of, technological sort of refinement in that interaction than there has been. There have been little bits and things. Microsoft Teams done a couple of things, but it's still kind of lipstick on a pig in a a sense. I, you know, it would be great if Steve was here right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Here's here's an interesting one. What's the single best piece of business advice you've ever received? (laughs) Single best? Yeah. No, say no, say no. You know, everyone usually says yes, yes, yes. And they want to be, you know, uh, they want to get not seen as someone who's always negative. You know, oh, no, that doesn't matter. That doesn't make sense. You have to say yes and you have to focus on those yeses and you stay really focused on the yeses. But you can say no a lot. Right. And that's okay. But you need to say no and you need so you can refine and you can really get to the, the problems and constrain yourself. Because if you say yes to everything, then you have less constraints. Yeah. So the more times you say no, but yes in the right instances, then you put constraints on you so you really focus. Because, you know, that, that's like people who like buy baskets of stocks and everything else. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to just play the market versus really being committed to one thing and really seeing it through through the ups and downs. You talk a little bit about management, um, managing in the context of being an asshole and the <laughs> distinction between uh, a mission-driven asshole and a control asshole. Do you, uh, does this fit in there as well? It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, when you are on a mission and you are dead focused and saying, I'm not doing all this, but this is what we're doing and we're going to do this absolutely right and we're doing it for the customer for these reasons and you focus on those reasons and you focus on the work and you're saying we're doing this for the customer's benefit, it's okay to be, you know, um, micromanaging on the details that touch the customer. It's okay to push teams to find better solutions to things. You can't be a bully. You can't be demeaning to people. You can, you can criticize the work. You can't judge the person. 
Okay. And some people might not be in for that environment. That might not be the environment for them. They're probably great people. They just need to be in a different environment. But when you get that kind of dividing line and you understand it's about the customer and not the assholes who are ego driven, but you're customer driven, mission driven, and you're trying to do the right thing to grow your team, to really focus on those things. That is when and you're not hurting people along the way, right? That is when it's okay to be incessant and not in stop and unrelenting on those things that really matter for the customer. You can't micromanage every detail, let people do that, bring on their best ideas and, and enable them with their ideas and, and, and integrate their ideas when they, when they make sense. But you need to have that kind of laser focus to be able to change the world if you have a really big idea or even a small idea to to get that that non-fictional story told that is revolutionary. So how do you how do you integrate that into the future shape? And I mean, future shape is supposed to be about mentoring and coaching as well as as just traditional investing, right? So right. How, we know. call ourselves mentors with money. We're not VC. We have no. LP capital, no third-party capital, anything. Is that a question? So you take that philosophy and you push it down into the people you've picked as leaders. Is that the way? Well, it- well, they pick us too, right? It's a, it's we we select each other. But yeah, I'm like, you know, they're like, we really want money, money in your time, and I'm like, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, like, you could talk to the entrepreneurs. They'll go, man, they kick our ass, yeah. right? And but that's what it. If you don't see it and you talk to them and you say, look, and that's why I wrote the book was so they could read, <laughs> read these things and go, okay, this is, what it's, this is what it takes to do these things. It can't just be all love and nice and da-da-da. It, it's hard. It's hard to do these things. And um, yes, you're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. But you got to learn from it, and you, but you got to push to get to that point. And, and, and move forward. And so what we do is we're coaches. You know, the best coaches, usually the best coaches aren't the ones, oh, yeah, just go ahead and do whatever you want. And yeah, you're really great. And we'll win one day. So those ones who go, come on, we got to get up. I know you can do better. I've seen you do better. I know you have the talent. I've seen this before. Just let's work on this. Focus on that. You know, Bill Campbell was, was that, great was at this. Ask you about, was that Bill, Bill Campbell? Campbell was great at this. He knew nothing about technology. Yeah. But he knew how to find what moves people, what moves teams, and help them focus and drive them, right? He was, his nickname was the coach because he was really a, a coach, a football coach back in the day. That's what people need. That's what p- great parents are for their kids. Not ones who help them, not the ones who give them their journey and say, stay on this journey. Ones who help them find their journey but push them. Right. I have a chapter in there about CEOs, babysitter CEOs versus parent CEOs. Right. Parents put the companies at, at risk, put in a peril because, you know, that's where they're going to grow. Babysitters just give them back to the shareholders. Just do no harm. Right. Just let them grow like they would normally. But to get things to change, you need to be on the money. You need to be focused and you have to have the team grow into it. And learn about it. And that takes, you know, especially when you're down. Come on, guys. We can do this. Let's go. I see it in you. And they build themselves. And through by building themselves and their culture and their team, can they build these products? And then they can change the world. 
Here's, a, here's an interesting one. Um, we'll have to see if you agree with this. As an advanced <laughs> energy insider, I see Nest as a, quote, base hit, unquote, compared to the iPod's home run and the iPhone's grand slam. <laughs> Would you be willing to talk about this and if you'd be do anything differently with hindsight? Do you, first of all, do you agree? Well, there's first, there's Nest as a platform and home products in general, and there's Nest as a thermostat. Nest as a thermostat product company was a grand slam. We woke up people to the problem with thermostats and how ugly they were and how much money they were consuming, right? What they did for the planet. We got people to put them under a Christmas tree, right? We got people to self-install it. We got people with, in a movement, literally a movement to do this. We got Honeywell to sue us because we were really screwing with their business. We got the HVAC channel to hate us because we were selling them in Best Buy and being very uh, open book and transparent about the prices, whereas they were always making money because they were jacking up the price when they walk in and they look around and go, oh, they got a lot of nice stuff. This thermostat is 350 bucks. They walk in another house, it's $100, right? (laughs) So they didn't like us because we were changing the status quo. And now customers have choice. And they are self-empowered to do this, and it's all around energy. And home energy is a huge part of the consumption. Yeah. So to me, we were able to do that. We were out. We, we couldn't make enough for two and a half years. We changed the conversation around those things. And then Nest, because of the fact that I drove the, 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 the sale of Nest to change the landscape of where the trajectory of this technology was going instead of getting it changed on us. If you look, before, before Nest, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple weren't doing anything in that space. When Nest came, they were like, oh, that's kind of interesting. When Nest and Google got together, then all of a sudden, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Samsung, they're all like, oh, shit, we need to do something too. Look at how far we've come in 10 years since then. So as far as I'm concerned... Sure, but we are going to get a whole set of really good network devices. Now, Thread and Matter are coming, which we created at Nest. It was called Thread and Weave. Now it's called Thread and Matter for building a whole new network of devices that are much more resilient than the brittleness that we have today with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. That stuff is, and Amazon, Nest, or excuse me, Amazon, Google, Apple, uh, Microsoft, they all signed on to the standard and they're all working together on it, just like they did with Wi-Fi. So to me, did we, you could say Grand Slam Homer from what dimension? To me, that's huge. A small little team has been able to change all these big guys and change the energy discussion. To me, I think we've made the mark. Now, did we finish it? No. But did we start it and start it in a big way? Absolutely. I, I couldn't be prouder. Yeah. Okay. How did you, quote, reality test, unquote, your, quote, consumer story, unquote, for the iPod, uh, given Apple's culture of secrecy? We tested on each other. Yeah. We smart people around. You don't have to go and get, go out to the, you know, the, the masses and have them do surveys and everything else. That's, that's so not 1990s. I did that at Phillips. That, like, I learned that data does not equal insights. And data, when people haven't paid for things is not real data, right? Um, you have to have good judgment. Uh, but when you, when you do version one of anything, 
It's mostly opinion-driven decisions, not data-driven decisions. So if you get more opinions, you just get lower de- common denominator, right? And you just say, oh, I'm going to average between all the opinions. No, you have to have a strong opinion and maybe a few people around you who can be mirrors and help you to see what you're talking about and help you refine those opinions. But not until after you've shipped it can you get actual data and, ins- and, and con- consumer insights. Yeah. You have to have a very strong conviction on what it is you're building and why you're building and the story around it because there is no data you can get for it. You need to get it out there, ship it, and then modulate off of that with data but also insights and still opinions because you have to move it forward and leapfrog yourself as you go. We've got just a couple more minutes. I, I want to conclude by talking a little bit more about climate. Sure. And, and you know, we've had a lot of conversations about energy and batteries and mm-hmm. green hydrogen. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious on the optimism scale where you are, because there are some things that are looking super dark. Yeah. Many things that are looking super dark. But <laughs> if, you're, if you're not somewhat hopeful or somewhat optimistic, the alternative really sucks. <laughs> But so that's one thing. So you got to be you got to say, well, look, we got ourselves into this problem. We can get ourselves out. But what really makes me hopeful and especially going around the world is the number of brilliant brains out there working on the problems and solving the problems in their locale because they are they're all they're all different. You can't just have one magical technology and it's going to fix everything. I can see five, 10, 15 years in the future Every day, because we're building it today. These companies are building it. And you're like, oh, my God, this is coming. This is coming. You know, um, and, and so, what, seven years ago now? Eight years ago? If, and I don't know if anybody knows this company, Impossible Foods, right? They came, and it was four people, and I had the little thing. You know, they made me this little <laughs> quarter-sized thing. And I think they said, oh, this thing's cost like $25,000 to make for you, you know? <laughs> And, I, and they told me the story. Well, look now. Impossible Foods and the whole plant-based foods industry is started. You're seeing it in all the grocery stores. I was hopeful then. I was like, now it's become reality. We have so many of those seeds have been planted. And we're, we're lucky to be a part of those journeys. There's many of those other things that are going to be materializing over the next 5, 10 years. And with the will of customers the will of governments to actually go in in you know um, incentivize and and bring these to light and try them not every single one's going to be successful but there are enough of them there that make me very hopeful and optimistic because i can see the future it just i want it to come in faster right and we need to deploy it and what we really need and i again i hate the war but the war has accelerated a lot of this stuff yeah yeah and it's made us go how are we going to do this differently? And that allows us, now we say we have a common enemy, right? As opposed to, oh, it's so hard to make change. But when you have an enemy, oh my God. So, you know, I don't want to have that happen. But thank, thankfully, that's the dark silver lining of all of this, is that it can make this change happen and happen more rapidly. And once we see a few things, then all of a sudden it becomes a snowball and it, you know, and it, and, it, and we can roll it out everywhere because everyone can say no, no, no. But when you actually understand a lot of things like the hydrogen economy, new materials, you find out it's not just better for the planet. It's better for business. Yeah. It's way better to do business. You can make more money and, and, and better margins and stuff. And you're like, oh, it's a win, win, win. Why not? Right. 
a great note to end on. I think you're going to sign some books now. Join me. <laughs> I hope so. Tony for being here this afternoon. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.